Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. You mentioned earlier that uh, you had you, know, you wanted fighters and that you you think you would have enjoyed fighters and of course that that didn't happen. Um, but do you think that there is a difference in um, sort of mindset then amongst you two pilots because you fly as singletons? So you know one of the things if you if you talk to a fighter guy and and you you ask them what their challenges were in their first couple of years of flying operationally they'll say things like well you know maintaining sa keeping sight of you know my flight lead being a good wingman um you know just basically just hanging on in there and and i guess then if you're in, in and then you you sort of make that a four ship and now it's an eight ship and then you're, you're, you're doing 16 ship all of, of eagles whatever yeah. um now from a u2 point of view it's just you and, and i guess there are sort of parallels there with the the old f117 pilots where sure they would take off they go fly a route um and it would just be really them. Um, does that change the way that you are as a pilot? Does it change? Does it mean that the culture your community has is different to maybe the culture that um, a more sort of group focused um, um, aircraft or, or weapon system would have? Yeah, I, I think I think the culture. You know, it's, there's a culture there, and it, it is very it is very specific. I think to the U two and people that come there, you know, become a part of the culture. I think it does change you in some respects. People could argue that uh, with me. Uh, your point about large forest exercises and what the fighter guys do. And I've never flown, you know, as a, as a, as a, um, I've never been a qualified fighter pilot. I've gotten rides in the aircraft and I've gotten this, just a glimpse at what they do. Um, flying along on a four ship or a four V four. I've gotten to tag along quite a few flights. Actually, it's been a lot of fun and, and it's a huge learning opportunity too. But when I come back, I look at the complexity of the missions that the that the uh, that the men and women that, that fly fighters uh, do. It's it's impressive and it's it's hard. And uh, the, the, there's some aspects of what they do that uh, that I think are just inc- would be incredibly difficult. Um, and those are a little bit different maybe than what we have. Although, again, a lot of things have changed have changed in the U two world, and now we find ourselves integrating into these large force uh, packages. When I was the commander. Uh, during the uh, the second Gulf War over in Saudi Arabia, uh, we would go to the mission brief, 40 aircraft. And, uh, you know, we're and, and, and a lot of the a lot of our defense, you know, a lot of the folks that were you know, we have, we have maybe a, a four ship of Eagles and a four ship of Vipers that were up there pretty much dedicated to protecting us as we're as we're moving up into Iraqi airspace. And, you know, we are now we can't see them. 
but we are working, you know, we're working the timings rather than the orbit. We have to, we have to make sure we come in and hit our timings at the right time because they're all planning their big, their big push into the country at the exact same time. So that was again, a big community change for us. You know, we had always been just, Hey, we go when we go, you know, we, we go and we want, and we show up there and we fly the black line. And now it's not flying just the black line. We're, we're having to uh, make sure our timings are perfect and we have to communicate with the right people and pass the right codes and talk to the fighters that are trying to save our bacon if things get ugly. So a lot of that, a lot of that same mentality has um, a lot of the same concerns and uh, concerns, a lot of the same considerations and workloads have moved our direction from the other communities, the bomber community, the fighter community. So uh, again, I think it's, it's different depending on where you're at, but um uh, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of jumping around this, but the culture specific to the U2. It's certainly not a fighter culture. It's not a heavy culture, not a bomber culture. But I think a lot of the skill sets that uh, uh, that we've used over the last few uh, years have grown quite a bit from just the mentality of by yourself on the black line. Everybody leave me alone. I don't know what's I don't care what's going on around me, too. We are now part of a 40 ship package. And uh, and that's that's just the way it is in today's Air Force. And it's either it's either grow with it or or, uh, or you're going to be obsolete tomorrow. You've mentioned a succession of combat theaters that you've flown in. Um, how, how much combat time do you have? Oh, I don't even. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. If, uh, I have no no idea. A few hundred hours. I mean, I, I've, I've been fortunate. I got to fly the opening. Uh, I got to fly the uh, one of the opening U two missions on on the first day of, desert, of the first desert, of the first Gulf War. I flew the uh, opening day of the second Gulf War, and I flew the opening night of the uh, of Bosnia. So I was actually in the orbit. When everything started kicking off in Bosnia, that was, uh, you know, that was you, you, they have they have no missile threat that can touch us, and they really have no credible air threat. So I was just basically sitting in the, you know, sitting in the orbit, you know, with the best view in the house, and just watch, literally watching, you know, things start to shoot off and things blow up, and uh, very very dramatic, and uh, and uh, a very a very eerie feeling to know that hey, nobody nobody can touch you. You can just you sit up here all the whole time, and and uh, yeah, it was it was a very very unusual feeling, but. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've had the, I've just been fortunate in my timing. I've, I've been able to go fly in a lot of different uh, theaters and I've been there at the, at the right time to be able to go fly on day one. Well, what's the most uncomfortable you've been then in, in that sense, um, with, with regards to, you know, maybe somebody shooting at you or, or locking you up or, you know, having to go closer to something than maybe you want to, uh, you know, uh, that, that first, uh, first day of desert storm, um, that, that mission I was flying, flying right up around. If you remember, the, look at the old maps. There was a in the Saudi Iraqi border. There was an area called the neutral zone, a little diamond shaped area in the border. And I was, I was flying real close to that, and uh, I got hit with an SA two uh, um, uh, indication on my on my raw gear. Never saw, never saw a missile. I don't think anything ever got launched. Um, but that was one of those. Wow, I didn't expect that to happen. You know, and uh, you know, looking outside, yeah, yeah, no, nothing's happening there. You know, kind of, kind of pressed on. Uh, I've never really had anything from from a threat standpoint other than that. Um, you know, there's no real credible air threat in Afghanistan, um, and then you know since the Gulf War, there was never really much in the way of credible air threats uh, in Iraq. Uh, they, every now and then, they would take a uh, they would take a shot. You know, we just with some kind of what we call a science project, just take a you know, unguided shot, and hoping they'd hit something. And uh, to dive off on a quick story on that, we had a uh, we had one of the pilots here, absolute character, live across lived across the street from me on base, and. Uh, uh, we we all they the uh, there was there was an incident uh, years ago in the '90s when the Iraqis took a science uh, science project shot and it it actually got fairly close to the uh, to the U two didn't damage him but uh, I think he saw the flash and maybe maybe felt a little of the shockwave but 
it got really close to him. They, you know, pretty lucky. And we, we, we really laughed because, uh, if you remember the book, the ransom of red chief, uh, we, we, it was, it was kind of a children's book, but we always laughed that had they shot him down, it would have been one of those. He would have made their life so miserable. They would have been paying us to <laughs> please just take him back. He would have actually, he, he would have been inside their turn circle and making their life so miserable. Uh, and, and they wouldn't know what to do with him. But, uh, um, uh, digressing off on a, on a, I hadn't thought of that in a long time, but, um, most concerned, uh, one time, um, <laughs> uh, it was my, it was one of my very, very first, uh, it was one of my early operational stories out of England, uh, flying down the inner German border. And there was part of the track where I, uh, I, I, um, I was pretty much heading right at the German border, you know, west, west to east, heading at the border, and, and uh, the, I was going to hit it and do a nice, easy left turn. As, and as I'm, you know, looking at them, you know, we have these charts that are mounted on a, a 11 by 14 cardboard because it's easier to handle the chart there. You have them all pre-mounted. And look at the chart. Yeah, okay, it'd be a right turn or a left turn. All of a sudden, the plane goes into this, this right turn. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing a doing a right turn as the plane starts to bank, it continues to bank, continues to bank. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. So I grab the yoke and, and uh, hold on to it. All of a sudden, the autopilot kicks off. You get the which lets you know the autopilot's off. Like, so I kick off the autopilot and I grab the plane. The plane's starting to actually nose down and go into a dive. And I grab the, uh, grab the yoke, kick it off. And I'm like, I've got a ton of roll force to the right. Kick it off and, and the pl- I've let the plane get two nose low and the plane's already going into the Mach Buffett. As we're going downhill, I'm already going through the, the speed, you know, the max speed of the aircraft, the max book speed. I've oversped the aircraft. And um, there's a lot of roll force to the right. And it's kind of funny because at the time we, we carried a, a recorder on the aircraft and you, you tr- on the yoke on the right here, there's a, there's a trigger here, a little button, and you can push it, you know, you can push it and record some stuff. Hey, I see I got an indication of this, this, and this, uh, time now, 1143, and I'm at position of this. And you, well, you could just make verbal notes to be processed, you know, when you got on the ground if you didn't have time to write it down. So I guess I grabbed the yoke and the plane's going down and I was going, shit! And I, I guess I keyed the mic because they had that on the... Uh, uh, on the recorder when I got back, what had happened is uh, I learned this lesson. I pass this on to the, to the guys later. We have our tube food. It looks like a tube of toothpaste, and you have your tube food. You eat in your helmet. Well, I'd I'd gotten a, a tube food out, and I wasn't going to eat it right away, but I already had it out, and I, and I laid it up in the front left quadrant, right in, uh, right in front of the throttle. Well, right up there, if you look at a cockpit on the U two cockpit, there's an aileron trim, it's, it's, and you could push it left or push it right, and the tube food had fallen over onto the aileron trim and it ran me full aileron trim to the right and uh well i guess you know i guess it happened you know it, it, i don't know when it happened but at some point along the way the autopilot went i'm out i can't control this anymore and that was when the when everything kicked off and the autopilot rolled over and uh, and and, and I, I was grabbing an aircraft which i thought was a flight control problem you know i felt it and you know after i got the airplane under control and everything i you know looked down and there's this tube of toothpaste or tube of uh, tube food laying on the on the aileron on the aileron trim mechanism and you know got everything trimmed back out and uh, and everything was fine didn't hurt the airplane fortunately but uh, that was that was a uh, that was a that was a few seconds of uh, like holy smokes man this is a this, this really got my attention um i mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview about the the near mishap i had that was the closest i've ever come to wrecking in a, a u2 when we had the uh the misrigged um uh, misrigged uh, flaps when i was a new guy and I'd say most of the, you know, most of the, uh, 
most of the stuff uh, that I've, I've had has happened has been because of the, the sheer small window we fly in. If it, if it deviates out of that window, uh, it, it, you know, like in the T-38, you've got a huge range of speed you can fly. And F-15, C-17, probably a huge range you can fly in those aircraft. The U-2, you kind of get outside the little tiny window there and things get exciting pretty quick. So there's at most I, I could roll through a number of stories. I won't bore you with them right now, but all I'm involved usually just getting letting myself get outside that little operating envelope of the U2 due to usually due to weather conditions, turbulence, uh, autopilot failure due to the turbulence, something like that. Um, do, do you? Uh, so this is uh, I, I think um, sort of most problematic, very high, isn't it? So and it's the difference between the fastest you can go before getting into the Mac Buffett and the slowest you can go before stalling. And exactly. that is that is a few knots of margin. Is that correct? It's it's actually more. It's uh, apparently in the C model, the smaller aircraft, the window is a lot smaller. Uh, in our in our aircraft, it's actually a fairly. Lo- it's a lot larger. Um, it's a lot larger window than people think. But when you do look at it on paper, it's like yeah, it's 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 small. You know, you're operating in you know, you know maybe six 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 knots to your overspeed, and you know six seven knots like that. Uh, but it, it is one of those things that it's manageable, and we, you know, you, you you look at it and then you train to it and, and you do it. You know, you ask anybody flying fighters when they first get there, it's like, holy smokes, this is this is pretty intense. Uh, but then they train to it and they do it very, very, very well. Flying C-17s, you know, the, the the crazy stuff they do on those on forward deployed things in the C-17. I've had those guys describe it to me, and I think to myself, wow, that sounds like a, a big challenge. But we have training programs that that train you to it. So it's uh, uh it, you you. Like anything else, you get used to it, and you you respect the end of the envelope, and you uh, you work your best not to exceed it. So where is where is the U two most? Um, I don't want to say dangerous because that's quite an emotive term, but um, I, I remember you know, just being here in the UK, a, a TR one crashing on takeoff, and I think the the pilot ejected, but but didn't make it. Um, and there was fairly recently within the last few years, there was the two seater. Um, that, that crashed in, in Northern California. Um, what, yeah. what, what are the things that catch people out then? Yeah, I, I, I don't know what our accident rate is now, but years ago we had probably the highest accident rate, uh, class A mishap rate of, of the U.S. Air Force fleet. Don't know what it is now. That was, that's been a while. Uh, the mishap you alluded to in the U.K., that was actually 25 years ago this year. It was August of uh, 1995, if I remember right. 25 years uh, at Fairford. If you're talking about that oh, one, I okay. guess. Um, yeah. Boy, what's the what's the the most dangerous? You know, st- statistically, um, most of the mishaps have, uh, have in, involved wearing the, wearing the pressure suit. The one that we had uh, three four years ago, the two seater, did not. But if you go back and look at most of the class uh, uh, the class A mishaps aircraft, you know, aircraft that were destroyed um, in, in a mishap, almost everything involved uh, flying in the pressure suit. Why is that? I don't know. But uh, we, because we fly a ton of flights around you know, around the flagpole at Beale Air Force Base, doing a lot of training with a lot of folks that are very inex- they're experienced aviators, but they're not experienced in the U two. But that's relatively safe uh, statistically. But as far as my perspective as a as a somebody's flown the airplane a while, um, the the mission the mission everybody thinks of the, as the mission is being fairly benign. You get there, you drive down the black line, and not much is happening. But uh, it's very fatiguing. You're, uh, uh, there, there's the physiological effects of the high altitude and breathing pure oxygen for that, 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 uh, that period of time. Uh, your body, you know, at least when I was flying it, uh, the, your body was sitting at the top of Mount Everest. You're 29,000 foot uh, cabin, cabin altitude. That has changed in the last 
uh, eight, nine years or so, they've modified all the cockpits. And now you're only flying at about 14,000 foot on your body. They've cut it. They've, they've, they've increased the cockpit pressure and lowered the altitude down. Um, but the fatigue issues, uh, you know, any fatigue study you look at, your, your performance goes down dramatically after you certainly cross certain, certain uh, thresholds of a number of hours on duty. So I, I think a lot of it is people, uh, people see the, the mission as being, eh, you know, not much going on there, but uh, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of risk going out there, not having a wingman or somebody else in the cockpit to, uh, to monitor you. Uh, and, you know, as my professional job, I fly you know, in, a, in, a, in a two-person cockpit. And there's been plenty of times in my brief, my brief time as a professional commercial pilot where having that second person has been, has been very, very, you know, very, very helpful and, and kept us out of, you know, increasingly um, risky, not risky, but, you know, they, they, we've mitigated the risk because there are two of us. You just don't have that when you're flying the U-2. And, you know, you could be flying the U-2 and in a 10-hour mission, by the time you show up and put the suit on and get going, you could, you could be feeling good. And the cold and the flu develops over the course of that. You suddenly find yourself coming back, uh, you know, sick. They come back early because you're sick. And so nobody to really help you out there. Um, but operating, operating in the suit is, is definitely, um, you, you just lose a little bit of essay uh, when you're operating in the suit, especially early on to you learn to really learn to, as I mentioned earlier, turn, turn to shake hands in the suit and learn, you know, learn to go through this relationship for the next few years with the pressure suit and you know, learn to love each other. Uh, but early on, it can, it can be quite a challenge. What, uh, what, what did you do then once you come back from um, Alkenberry, did you, did you, I mean, do you fly the U2 all the way through or is there some, some ground tour or, you know? Yeah, my, my, my quick, uh, my quick history. So your pilot training and then three years flying the T-38 as an instructor pilot at Laughlin Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, Beal for six months for training and then off to Alkenberry for three years and three months. They decided uh, they were going to close the unit down at Alkenberry. This is, you know, spring of 93. I left in June, June of 93. They decided to keep the keep it open there for another year, and they they backfilled it with detachment pilots coming in from Beale. But the permanent party all we all left in '93 uh, because I was under a unit closure at the time. The Air Force gave us the option somewhat of where we wanted to go. Beale wanted me to come back, and I was I burned out a little bit after flying the U two for four years, and I wanted to go back and fly the T thirty eight at the instructor schoolhouse in Texas at Randolph Air Force Base. So if you're going to become a, a pilot training instructor, you go to the schoolhouse for a three month course learn how to be an instructor, and then you go, to the, go out to the pilot training base. Well, I'd done the pilot training base thing for three years. I wanted to go teach in the school, in the instructor schoolhouse, and I applied for or asked to, asked to go there, and I got that. So for three years, I went back there and flew the T-38 as an instructor instructor, if you will. And after about two years of that, it was great, but I thought, you know, I really am missing the, uh, the YouTube program, missing the people, missing flying the aircraft. So I'd kind of gotten through the burnout, if you will, and um, asked to come back to the U-2. And uh, about that time, I got promoted to major, and they said, "Yeah, if you get," they said, "If you get promoted to major, we'll take you back. If you get passed over, we'll have to talk about it." I got promoted to major, and uh, at the end of my tour there, I ran off back to Beale uh, in '96. Flew at Beale from '96 until 2000, and uh, by then I had just shy of 15 years in the Air Force, and I elected to get out of the Air Force and uh, moved back to Texas as a civilian, working as a commercial uh, airline pilot. And I was on a I was on a trip in. Um, uh, in Chicago, I'm, I'm standing there at the gate waiting for, the, you know, the plane came there and all the people are getting off the aircraft and I'm waiting around and waiting to go do the pre-flight and off comes a couple of people. I, I look at them, I, I kind of recognize them from Beale and then one of my really good friends, Dean Neely, comes off the aircraft. I'm like, hey, Gucci. He's like, hey, I'm like, what are you guys doing? He goes, oh, we're getting back from a deployment. I said, where'd you go? He said, sorry, can't tell you. 
And I thought, you know, man, I really miss this stuff. And this is, uh, when is it? This is like spring, probably spring of, uh, probably spring of 01. And uh, so I got back home. I thought about it. And I started talking to my wife. I said, hey, what do you think about going back, going back in the Air Force? She's like, ah, you made your bed. You got to sleep in it. You, no, we, no, we're not doing that. So I, I still went in, got online, and made, made a few phone calls. I called back to the squadron and talked to the squadron commander, Spike Gentile. I said, hey, Spike, uh, sir, if I could, I'd like to maybe come back to the YouTube. Would you take me back? And uh, he said, yeah, if you, if you decide to come back, let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll bring you back in the YouTube program. So I got the application from the Air Force on coming back on active. I got it all filled out on my, you know, on my desk over time. And I had it all filled out, ready to go. And I lived 10 minutes from Randolph Air Force Base, which is where the Air Force Personnel Center. I was going to hand walk this thing in and, and, and go through the process. And I've been working on my wife on it. She was kind of rolling her eyes thinking about it. Um, had it sitting on my desk. And I went out and uh, go flew my next airline trip. And that was, I think, September 9th, 20, 2001. So went out and flew my, uh, you know, day one, day two or whatever. And on September 11th, 2001, I was airborne going from Kansas City to Chicago when 9-11 went down. And uh, we landed in Chicago. I spent five days stuck in Chicago. And uh, when uh, things started to open back up, I was on the first flight that went from Chicago back into San Antonio on around the 16th, 17th, somewhere in there of uh, September. Uh, Waited a couple of days, you know, saw the writing on the wall. Gathered my application up. Uh, security was a little bit tighter on the base, and I can't remember how I did it. I had, I had an ID card somehow, but I was able to get myself on the base and hand walk my application to come back on active duty into the Air Force. And um, dropped it off. And uh, then I started politicking uh, on the side to find, to get requalified in the T-38 through going to Randolph because I didn't have to sell my house, move on back. Uh, and um, there was a T-30. Uh, Beale didn't have a training slot for me. But I was able to make a few phone calls, and I was able to get a, a get a slot into uh, to go to to go to Randolph as a pit student. I'd been a pit instructor, but now I'm going to go back and go through the the qualification course as a student. So it was a, it was a, it was a screamingly good deal, and um, the course started on November 19th, 2001. And so I've got my application in, and they approved my application for, you know, for the next step. I went down, I got my medical. And I had that done probably by end of September. And I'm, I'm waiting, and I, I would call up their personnel center. Hey, uh, I've got this date, November 19th, to start PIT, uh, the pilot instructor training course. I'm waiting on your medical results. Call a week later. What's going on? Medical results, medical results. So as we started to get in around the 1st of November, I started to get a little concerned. I start tracking and start tracking and start tracking. And so finally, about a, about a week prior to me showing up, I'm, I'm literally driving down every day to the personnel center and saying, I'm starting here. What about, well, wait on your medical results. And on the Friday prior to me starting, uh, uh, I think it was November 19th. I think it was a Monday. A Friday, going to the personnel center in the afternoon. They're like, sorry, we don't, we don't have it. We can't bring you on. I said, I don't care. So the, the, the next Monday morning, I had, I, I had kind of grown a goatee. I threw on some nice clothes and a, and a tie. And I showed up to academics as a civilian at Randolph Air Force Base. I walked in the class. And they all, the instructors all knew me. They're like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm just going to sit through and audit the class. Really? Yep. Okay, so I sat through academics, you know, as Mr. John Huggins. I went through the, the systems academics for a few days, and, and then we finished academics. Any orders? Nothing yet. Fine. If the Air Force can't, be, can't, be, can't find a way to get me, uh, get me on active duty yet, I'll continue to go through the course, but I, can't, I won't be able to find my razor either. So I show up in the squadron with a full <laughs> goatee and dressed very nice. I wore a sport coat every day and slacks, and I sat through all the, all the preliminary missions we did. Now, they wouldn't let me do any flying. They wouldn't let me do any 
simulators. I mean, those cost money, but anything, it was a briefing. I sat through and did as much as I could. And sure enough, a few weeks later, medical got approved and I got my orders and I was able to continue. Actually, they let me continue on in that class because I hadn't really, uh, they hadn't got me, I'd done all the preliminary stuff and I wasn't really, but, but a couple of days behind on the simulators. So I was, I was, I was basically up to speed and on track and uh, it all worked out really, really well. Finished that up in uh, early, uh, finished that up in March or April of um, 2002 and then went right back to Beale Air Force Base. Showed up there as a qualified T-38 instructor pilot and went through my U-2 uh, recall. And uh, I was, I was a Beale from 2002 until I retired in uh, late 2014. So a nice 12-year stretch. Minus one year when I was uh, yanked out of the program over to the, uh, the MC-12, uh, King, Air, King Air variant. I went over to Af- Af- Afghanistan. Uh, I was over there for about seven months. Uh, I spent about 12, 13 months in the MC-12 program until I was able to claw my way back into the program I loved the most, which was the U-2, and uh, was back into the U-2 for a while. So uh, some funny good uh, sub-stories in there I could, we can dive into later, but that was, that was kind of my career progression.